Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. We're all about providing equal opportunity understanding. I'm Kevin Johnson, Physician and Informatics Chair at Vanderbilt and at KBJ Vanderbilt on Twitter. And it's a pleasure to give you both entertaining and edifying conversation about informatics on this here podcast. I'm incredibly grateful to our guest today. This episode was actually conceived and put together in under two days based on the issues surrounding George Floyd and anti-black racism and a movement called Shutdown STEM that was announced for Wednesday, June 10th. I realized that this podcast was an ideal platform to begin a conversation around what we in informatics should be doing to improve diversity, health equity, and inclusion, and what we can do to combat anti-black racism. So I got on the text message and email and was thrilled to get my wish list of guests to agree not only to participate, but to participate in a recording session that was going to be 24 hours later. Dr. Ari Nettles is on this episode. She is Professor of Pediatrics and the Director of the Office of Inclusion and Health Equity at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She's a national expert on the issues we focus on, and that will be immediately obvious. Dr. Nancy Lorenzi is Professor of Biomedical Informatics and Clinical Professor of Nursing at Vanderbilt University. She is also Vice President for Strategic Change Management at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. What topic could actually need a change management expert more than how to combat anti-black racism and how to think about ways that informatics can play a part. I was absolutely thrilled to have her here. She's the world's expert on organizational dynamics and how to change structures and processes. Dr. Yaa Kumar Crystal is an assistant professor of biomedical informatics and pediatrics. Yaa is a thoughtful, articulate, and experienced black woman who is wildly creative and offers a lot of insights during this conversation. Philip Adejumo is a soon-to-be medical student at Yale, where he will be pursuing an MD and a PhD at the same time. Oh, and he's a swimmer, as he'll tell you a little bit about, and has qualified for the Summer Olympics. He's pretty amazing and very insightful. Dr. Patty Brennan is one of the most visible and most influential biomedical informatics experts in the world. The world! She's director of the National Library of Medicine, and in that role, as well as in her previous roles in academia, she has been a fierce proponent of personalized care, health equity, and the importance of social and behavioral determinants of health in developing socio-technical systems. Them some fancy words, but we'll explain them shortly. We covered some very visceral and at times, frankly, frustrating topics. I don't want to give anything away on this one, folks. It's worth the ride. The one thing I will say is that it's not just about the usual topics of bias and data, more papers about how to help subpopulations in our community become resistant or resilient. Not that these aren't important, but we went somewhere much deeper, much more generalizable, and way beyond, though inclusive of, informatics. I, for one, have some very clear marching orders based on this podcast. Listen to this one twice, once where you listen to podcasts, and once at a place where you can keep your to-do list. You can and will make a difference if you heed even one piece of advice from this episode. Oh, and yes, there's some music for you at the end. See if you can guess beforehand what we decided to include. It'll be obvious in retrospect. Okay, let's get on with it. Yeah, I'm oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, 
Hello, Dr. Brennan. Hello, Dr. Johnson. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, Patty, let me introduce you to Ari Nettles, who is the woman with the violins behind her. Hi, Ari. Hello, how are you? And, very yeah, good. And, and Philippe Adajumo, who is it? It's Adajumo, uh, right? Yep, Adajumo. Adajumo, who is a, a, a research fellow at our lab now in, in DBMI, was about to start his uh, MD PhD at Yale. Oh, terrific. Yeah, and, and there's a little more to him. He's got a little bit of other layers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. I'll, I'll be, I'll be studying. I'm. That's still kind of like in the, the big question, I think. But I think I'm going to be studying like um, patient outcomes, like patient. Good. Outcomes. Yeah. Who's going to direct your PhD thesis? I think Harlan Krumholtz. Well, Harlan Krumholtz just gave me a big tweet yesterday that I really needed when we opened. <laughs> we yeah, I have a. Yeah, he tweeted. He, he tweeted you yesterday. Yeah, we were get, we just we just released our the putting preprints into PubMed. Okay. And, cool. um, and he's of course you know a big open science guy, but but we we were getting a lot of you know there's a a mixture of um, very positive and very controversial remarks to it, including people feeling like we've contaminated the brand and such. So Harlan's tweet was really important. Wow. There was, there was a, this is probably super unrelated, but there was a tweet I saw about how people have been mispronouncing med archive as med oxiv. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was funny. I had, I had a, a, a colleague at, when I taught a case who knew exactly how to pronounce every word. And, and right. <laughs> so often her pronunciation was really not one that you or I might have adopted. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, how are you? I am so wonderful. Thank you guys so much for having me. I have to share that I was on campus today and I took Jude, my nine-year-old, along with me and we participated in the day of silence and the kneeling. And um, it was a really, it was an amazing experience. A lot of people were there. So it was really cool to be part of it and to have brought Jude along. Yeah, I was in, I did it as well. I did it earlier this morning. Um, so what we had on campus was a series of people, about 10, constantly kneeling um, for eight minutes and 46 seconds to commemorate George Floyd and um, you know Black Lives Matter. And it started at, uh, I don't know, probably six or seven. And it's been, it'll be going on all day long today. Wow, that's pretty, that is pretty impressive. My knees hurt. Yeah. No. <laughs> I felt my age. <laughs> hey, Nancy. I saw a picture from the, from the, there were over 30 people there. There weren't just eight or 10. Wow, when was that? Uh, Brian Carlson just was in the lobby of Langford and was showing it as we were on a conference call. Jeez, okay. Well, it's going to be hard to socially distance if they had 30 people. They, were they had over. like little <laughs> markers out. <laughs> they were all over. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't want to take, take too much time now, but I have a very funny uh, Star Trekky type uh, video of the National Library of Medicine that I, I'm going to send all you guys if, if oh, I Oh, please do. Um, it's, it's really, we, know, we didn't know it existed. And we just discovered it this weekend. It's really pretty funny. Oh, I can't wait to see that. So I have four phrases to summarize the issue of the day. Black Lives Matter, I Can't Breathe, Eight Minutes and 46 Seconds, and Shutting Down Academia. And those are just four of many phrases I could have come up with. And, you know, essentially, here we are as a medical specialty dealing with this onslaught of data and a desire to convert data to information, to knowledge, to wisdom, and 
Patty setting up data science within the National Library of Medicine, and Nancy telling us about people and process, and Ari and Philip, who are probably the closest to the front lines right now of people who are going to be experiencing how all these things impact patients in their lives, are probably filled with questions that help us to sort of get around the issue of how can we, in a field like biomedical informatics, do anything to improve what's going on right now in my head and a lot of our heads around anti-Black racism and police brutality and all of what's been happening in this world right now, separate from, of course, COVID-19, which is a whole other conversation we could be having. So I wanted us to spend some time on this today, and I was really excited that Ari could, Ari could come on and help us with this because her work at the UMC has been all about diversity and inclusion, many of you, and health equity. She was one of the people who brought the phrase of unconscious bias into our space. And so here we have Patty Brennan, who is in charge of all of us. You know, she's, I say she's the matriarch, right? And we have other people in this, on this call who I hope can maybe help us figure out what, what could we do to respond to the problems that you see that maybe you would expect me to be fixing? I have two questions. One is um, how do we maintain the person, the interperson connection? I mean, uh, okay, for example, like behind me are these little violins. Okay, this is my violin wall. I'm very excited about it because it represents a lifetime of my three daughters who all played strings. And there's some several funny stories or whatever, but violin represents growth because when they get bigger, they go to another violin and then you have your full size. How do you measure the growth of individuals who are faculty and staff and learners in their growth of understanding people and their efforts toward health equity? You know, if we if we do the technology part like I don't want to lose the personableness, right. if there's such a word. But you know, how do we how do we make sure that happens, or is that possible, or is it is technology just a complement to it? And the other part is, I worry about access and technology. I mean, we assume everybody knows what everything means in terms of the patients and the, you know whatever they use in, in access online and, and whatever. I mean, I remember that when I first started with all this real technology stuff, um, I, I became my mother and father where I said I would never do that and, and not be in the know. Yeah. But I didn't know something. You know, like when my daughter said to me, oh, my sister just was it unfriended or defriended or whatever. Well, whatever she said to me, I called up that particular sister and said, you know better than not to be friends with your sister. That is just unacceptable. <laughs> And the, all three of them thought, mom, you have absolutely lost it. That is not what we meant, but that is really funny. And I'm still not sure what they really meant. But, you know. The, the last part you stated regarding um, access to technology is actually very near and dear to me because I remember exchanging 1 a.m. emails with Kevin when the whole COVID thing came around and we were trying to figure out telehealth for our patients. And mm -hmm. something that quickly brought itself to light is that not everyone's going to have access to these technologies to start getting this new standard of care. And the technologies we were using were not necessarily accessible 
not even because of the physical tools, but just the way that we were implementing them to everybody. And it was challenging to try to think through, well, what is it we're missing? Who are the right people to ask about this? What are the right questions to ask? Um, and the, the highlight that I could say of all of this is that I learned about the leaders in the area whose responsibility is to help think through these things. And um, I was happy to learn that there are people who have voices um, on the larger committees and um, with medical center leadership to help push through some of these items. But I, I don't know that it's enough what we're doing and I feel like we could certainly be doing more. We might not have all the infrastructures in place to really acknowledge the fact that yeah. um, as we implement new technology, not everyone is going to fairly benefit from it. That was painful people, just to let you know. So, <laughs> oh, I'm sure it was. And I make that sound like it was so sang <laughs> you know, sanguine and everything. But the fact of the matter is, we were finding out from one group of people that they could not be more pleased with the way telemedicine was going in academic centers in general, Vanderbilt in particular, because we had a beautiful curve showing that our volumes had decreased, but our telemedicine business were starting to make up for the volume. And then there was another set of data coming out of two of uh, our specialties saying, yes, but non-English speaking patients can't use the telemedicine. There's a number of patients who, as it turns out, um, and I didn't even realize this, needed to have an email address to activate their use of our portal because part of this activation process required email, not text messaging. So what mm -hmm. patients did, we found out, was they borrowed an email address or they had one on Gmail that their kids made years ago. So they knew that they were, you know, tracer4 at gmail.com. And then we would send an activation code to that email address that they could never see because they'd never ever logged into Tracer4 at gmail.com. Then their visit comes along, and by the way, we need an interpreter, and the tools that we were using were very difficult for us to get an interpreter on in addition to the patient, and then when the patients didn't know how to do anything, the interpreter was trying to run the visit and also be the technical support. So I'm so disappointed to have to say to you that these questions were coming up in the 80s when we were first trying to use technology to provide home care support to people with AIDS when we first had the very beginnings of very primitive technologies. And um, they, they required an agency of the participant that face-to-face that -face care doesn't require. And I, I, can't, I can't tell you how disappointed I am that in 40 years we've not actually made a lot of progress in solving it. But there's, there's three things that I think we, we really need to do as developers and designers that, that may take us a little further. And, and they're not, none of them are easy to do, particularly when you come from a position of majority race and self-efficacy and assertiveness. We need to get into people's homes and understand how they live and how technology fits into where they live. And that, that creates a, 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 an intrusion that personally I should not be the one to do, but we must understand where they live. The second is we need to build technologies on the understanding of how people are as opposed to how we are. And, and Nancy was saying this really nicely before, but we make presumptions about our ability to speak and expected to be heard, our ability to request and have a right to a response. And all that stuff is built into our technologies in very implicit ways, like sending out the confirmation email with yeah. your code in it. You, 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 you presume there'll be a response, but sometimes you have to walk through the response. So we have to figure out where people live. We have to figure out where it, what, what social, social psychological skills are, are presumed. 
and then either decide that they're presumed so we have to teach them to people or they're presumed and if a person doesn't have them, we have to help our clinicians compensate for them not being there. And then the, the last thing is we need to create the, the electronic equivalent of proprioception. When you lean in to touch a patient, when you pull back as to let someone have a moment to grieve, they can feel that in the room. They can feel your presence. And in, in my experience as a woman interacting with, with men, and this is really the closest thing I can imagine to being non-majority race interacting with the majority races, the cues are different. And I don't always understand their cues. And, and then when you put an electronic shield in between it, it's not possible to get the cues across. So that's, I think we can build this, but I think it means we have to teach technology design in a very different way. So I guess my, from my perspective, right, I am kind of just starting to enter the whole medical space. And what I've found since I've kind of started to learn more about informatics and learn more about trying to kind of um, make healthcare more accessible to everybody is that a lot of this stuff is so complicated. You know, like you go, you go to the clinician and you have to fill out form after form after form. No one's even reading it. Even me trying to get my patient records, like it's a nightmare. I have to still ask my mom, like, oh, who did I go see when I was like three? And what's the name of the cardiologist that I talked to when I was eight? I feel like I still have the perspective of like being kind of close to like a non-clinical like background and starting to bridge into that. But a piece of me thinks like, if I'm having so much trouble with this, how, like, how are other people that don't have any kind of medical background, medical training, supposed to understand this, you know? And I think that there's just so much information coming from so many different points and so much data that you need to collect from so many different points that it almost becomes just a nightmare even trying to kind of conglomerate everything. I actually think that if we could understand where the people are and what they need, that the technology can work around that. But right now, all the things, a lot of the things that we're designing, we're designing with other people in informatics, maybe asking one or two patients that become our model, but it's not everyone. One of the funny things that happened when we were implementing Epic, a lot of people came in. That would be, that would be me she's talking to directly. <laughs> so people would come in to the outpatient area, and one of the things in the early days of implementation, they wanted their email address. And so many people didn't have an email address. So our staff are super creative, and I love this. They made up an email address. Are you ready? Has no email at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> we had to actually go to Gmail in case they got all these. Yeah, things. right. There were tons of people that they made up things. So, but we didn't think about some of that at the beginning. We sort of assumed everybody has an email. It's like it, it's like you get a social security number at birth, you get an email at birth, but that, that's not how it is. So I, it's the people that comes in. And one of the problems in informatics is we spend a lot of time on the technology side, but the people side, that squishy side, is like, uh, yeah, we'll deal with that later. So that well, those are the well, I'm a person, and so I can, we don't have to have that like your designer. I know this area. Yes. That's right. Well, you so know, I want to ask the pediatrician people in the room for a minute. How do we get the voices of children into this conversation? 
See, that, that's, that's a very, very good question. I'll give you an excellent example. I was on telemedicine uh, last week, and um, a, a part, part of my patient's cleft craniofacial. I was also trying to determine if the child met criteria for autism spectrum disorder. Well, I couldn't even see the child because she was in another room. She kept hiding in another room. Um, and so, A, if, if, if the child was in the, the room, if we were, you know, at, at the hospital, I mean, that is just great data because from the moment I lay eyes on the kid, I am starting to collect data about the behavior. And then also in, 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 in just different interactions and so forth that really kind of speed up the process from a clinical standpoint is someone kind of, meets that preliminary care, uh, category for, for spectrum disorders and some characteristics of it. But the only thing I can say is, you know, the kid was there, but the kid was hiding in the room. Uh, I saw more of the dog than I did of the kid. You know, she had a good interaction with the dog, but I, how do I do that with technology other than report that? So the richness of it and the connectivity. Yeah, but Patty, I want to go back and ask you, and I know Yah has something she wants to say here. When you bring this up, can you give me a, you know, thinking about the issue of today, which yeah. is this group of patients who may have limited access because of the English language preference or none, or being, you know, a, a underrepresented minority, where do you think their voices don't get heard, but they should be? When I look at all the work that's been done on SDA, the social domains or social determinants of health, it's been very much done from a, a uh, if you will, an, an academically objective research paradigm that in itself imposes things. So, for example, I, I grew up in Southwest Philadelphia and grandmother and kinship networks were enormously important in families. And yet, in social domains of health, when we describe family, it, it is still very much, if you will, nuclear family, double parents, different genders, and and. And so there's there's no there's a there's a parsimony or a, 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 an impoverishment of the way the phenomenon are, are described and captured, and that and that then spills over to the so if I want to give authorization to look at my clinical record to my play nanny next door, there's no mechanism for doing that because there's no legal relationship, and so yes. the systemic requirement of a legal relationship reinforces, if you will, the system blocking. Of access to that, and and I was 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 thinking um, a little bit about Philip's statement. Imagine a kid in foster care who doesn't have one mom to talk to, but has six moms to talk to, and is trying to figure out where do I go next, or where did I go when this, when did I break my arm? I mean, we we've not set up any mechanisms to reflect what significant parts of our society who happen to also be racial minorities or underserved by healthcare are most likely to encounter. So it doesn't, the lack of, of, of foster care records in a clinical record doesn't seem to bother me because I was never in foster care, neither was my kid. But once I started to work with people and we have some grantees who do this, it's astounding. It's a lot of people. So that's a very good, that's a great example of it. Everything you're saying just resonates so much with me, Patty, with regards to how the systems as they're built don't even take into consideration what would be outside the norm. As scientists, as people in academia, as informaticists, we're, we're taught a lot about bias, right? We're taught about um, selection bias and participation bias. So things about science and how to make sure you're getting good data and good information and that your results are reproducible. But I don't know that we're thinking about real world 
biases and things outside of our own studies we're conducting that actually make things not generalizable. And I don't know if that's part of the curriculum. You don't learn to think like that in medical school. That's just not part of the training. And I certainly don't think that's part of a course in informatics either. We have um, things talking about like usability and heuristic design and things like that. But I don't know, just the, the, the points that you're making about different family structures and how we need to build technology to think through that just isn't part of training. And I'm just wondering how we could infuse more of that in the things we do. So this is for Black Lives Matter. And, and um, here's the quote that I found that I thought was interesting. Knowledge is power if it is applied in a powerful way. So if I look at informatics and I look at all the cell phones that are out there, what can we do that is informatics oriented that we can take to the cell phone that would help either improve my life so that I could lose some weight or <laughs> listen to my heart or do, you know, I've got an Apple watch so I can do an EKG. So the question is, where's that powerful way? We can design a powerful tool or multiple tools. If none of us use it, it's useless. So how can we take informatics products, projects, that can help with PTSD, that could help with food, that could help with anything and make it real. And I, I wanna start on this one because one of the other, I think seminal pieces of information that's come out this year were, was a study that was conducted about the extent to which African-Americans who put in grants to the NIH are successful relative to non-African-Americans. And a part of what was uncovered in that study is that some of the topics that are brought into the grant cycle by African-Americans aren't deemed as fundable. So you could argue that there is a set of biases, I don't think it's a hard argument to make, um, that study sections may go in, may start with. And I think, Nancy, a big piece of what you just described in terms of to what, to what extent is, are we limited in getting technologies that could be useful to people and software that could be beneficial to specific niches. And I think the answer is right now, the reality is we're somewhat limited. That when, when Yah talks about the telemedicine issue, which by the way, we could not solve, despite everything we know, it tells us that there is a fight that we really are gonna have to have at a, at a very high level to be able to start to inculcate these groups with the kinds of thinking that says, you don't think this is important, but it matters to a group of patients and it needs to be addressed. Or you don't think it's important for this data, for this particular AI um, algorithm development, but there are biases in these data that are gonna matter downstream. Unfortunately, especially for junior faculty, you risk your career. I mean, there's, we, we might, the training to Ari's point that we may have to start is, how do you fight for things you believe in, in a way that doesn't become the hill you die on, but does make it pretty clear that you are willing to sacrifice something to get a response. I guess one of the things that I always, I've always wondered is, I guess, NIH funding in general, right? Like you have, like they generally fund topics that are related to health, right? But what does health mean? You know, like what, what does it mean to be a healthy individual and 
in today's society and what does that look like? Because I think I can, that- I can tell you part of that. You look like healthy and I do not. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I guess that's the thing though, is that some people might look at me and think that I'm, but like think that I'm healthy, but you know, I feel like sometimes I think of myself and I'm like, oh, I can probably improve this. You know, and I think that, like, generally speaking, I think a lot of, like, Black people in today's society think that they can make improvements to their health and the, like, things like stress or things like, um, I don't know, like, there, there are a lot of ways where, there are a lot of places where I think that the Black community isn't necessarily being heard um, in, in light of their health. And I think that the NIH isn't really, I don't know, like, what, is construed as healthy. For example, if you're talking about like um, harassment in the workplace and you're trying to do some research with that, um, that in my eyes, that can be like construed as aspects of health, you know, and that should be kind of a, like, should be like involved in that conversation, but that might not be deemed as fundable by the NIH. Kevin, can I speak to this now? I would love for you to. So let, let me back up and say the federal government gives money through the NIH to scientists to figure out the answers to questions. We're responsible to society for that. And so one of the very important things and strategies we can begin to take today is to look at and advocate for the placement of our public members of our oversight boards to really come from a very broad and diverse background. Every single institute at NIH of the 27 institutes and centers has an oversight board a council or an advisory council, or in my case, a board of regents. And that board of regents approves every nickel that we give for research grants. Now, sometimes they approve thousands of grants at the same time, but they set the policies. And there are public members on every board. Frequently, they are populated by advocacy groups of a specific area. That's acceptable, but that's not the only way to go. And one of the, one of the things that I believe could be uh, could be a strategy and a, a, a powerhouse institution like Vanderbilt could help NIH with this is working with our public liaison office to help us better identify public members who have the capacity and the mm. ability and the time to serve on these boards so that the questions that Philip is asking, what do you tell a young investigator? Well, you tell them to grab for the brass ring. Don't worry about where your heart's taking you get for that ring first. Can we get public members to say science must serve society and publicly funded science must be open and accessible to the answering the questions that society brings forward? And that would put power, that's what, that's what we read, need to figure out, how to put some power behind the comments we're making that would allow change to happen. It, remove those rocks so that it can flow more smoothly. So I, I love that. It would be nice to see if we could get the people onto the, the, the uh, advisory boards. And, and the reason why I say that, that I say Vanderbilt and the privilege comes in part from what Gary Gibbons, who's the head of the NHLBI, said to me as I was, have been trying to formulate my messaging this week, both about George Floyd as well as about the, the shutdown STEM. And, and he, he, he really cautioned me. He's a black man, black male physician and incredibly well-respected, thoughtful, and direct. And he cautioned me to, to recognize if I'm going to, to experience my privilege, I must use my privilege. And part of what you do when you use privilege is you build bridges. So 
Kevin is on the, the Council of Councils for the NIH and has the ability, because he has the, the pathway to build a bridge. There are no simple answers to, to each of these, but the, 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 the fact of the matter is that activism requires that you make use of the talents and the resources that both you've grown as well as its society's imputed on. We have to consider uh, two basic things. We trust mm -hmm. and respect. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, you know, the Black Lives Matter and what we're going through, the disturbing period right now, um, and, and, and for me personally, um, this is like an everyday thing. So it's not something that just happened. It's mm -hmm. been a lifetime with me in terms of, of making sure that, that I'm safe, my family's safe, and, and everything else because of the color of my skin. Um, but trust is very important. I mean, Amy Cuddy talks about it in her work, right? Uh, warmth and competence, uh, all of those things. And I think that when we think about our, our patients and we're using our devices, we are farther along, we, we move away from that connectedness that, you know, that, that because be, us being human, that's how we tell if something is okay or good or fine. Um, and, and when, what worries me is that when the, the, the younger folks don't really even establish a sense of how to use the connectedness and in in their own, um, when I was going through clinical training, they say, use yourself as a clinical agent. Um, I don't know if that happens now. So the, the bottom line is respect, trust, warmth, competence. Uh, and how do you put all of that together in order to, to, to elevate those next steps and to be inclusive? Speaking like as, I guess, a younger student or someone that's about to enter academia, I think that a big part of the distrust of like, I guess, like academic science, like a lot of people are running away from academic medicine right now. And that's because people are becoming more aware of a lot of the like lines you have to kind of walk and the bureaucratics. And even just thinking back, I like, I remember reading about, I think it was the old Dean of Medicine for medical school. I'm not sure if I should name it, <laughs> but he was talking about how like medicine, the art of medicine should stay in the art of medicine. And there's not a place to talk about um, social determinants of health or diversity. That should stay with people that aren't physicians, you know? And you hear stuff like that and you see your peers kind of getting held down for trying to raise a conversation. Like even what's going right now, on right now with the Black Lives Matter movement on Twitter, like people are scared to talk about their experiences because they don't know how it's going to impact future positions or residency positions or, you know? So like I think until, I think until we see kind of the older generation step forward and start like actively like making efforts to like bring this conversation up. Like we'll always be scared to bring this up because of our careers, you know, we're like also trying to look forward in the career. And I think that's one of the things that's been gatekeeping a lot of people, a lot of like diverse opinions from like stating their opinions in medicine, just kind of a fear of, um, like stepping on the status quo and having their careers impacted by it. Thank you, Philip. That that resonates with me as well. I think it speaks to the systemic nature of um, some of these issues um, within academics, within society as a whole, um, with regards to getting people access to the things they need and defining what health is and defining what illness is. I grew up in Baltimore where 
people didn't trust the hospital. I mean, they were sick and they thought if they came in, people would do experiments on them. So how do you bridge that? How do you help explain that science, at least the, the heart of science, um, is supposed to bring truth and it's supposed to create healing um, to people who will just point to um, HeLa cells and say, are you sure? So I- you begin there, by recognizing that that trust isn't there and we have to stop pretending we can fix it in an encounter. It's a systemic betrayal of society. And, and you can pick your segment that was betrayed. So I'm sorry to, to jump over you, but we hear, no, this, we hear this, this idea that, that, that well, those people should trust us. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. And yet I know Tuskegee. And I know that there have been times where the financing plans for healthcare have privileged white men. So we, we have to be vigilant and, and recognize that part of our mission, whether it's through our science or through our care, has got to be, to address what Philip first stated, we have to help our young clinicians and scientists be safe enough and brave enough to name what they're experiencing. I couldn't agree more strongly. Philip, you're, you're bringing up a really sensitive point, which is why do people pick a career? And a lot of times they pick a career based on life experience. And if we tell them, whether it's informatics or any other field, that that life experience can't count yet, right? I mean, the thing that you went in for this for, you don't get to talk about until after you've become a professor or after you've received tenure. Then I think we, as you said, we're telling people, your dream has to go in our direction until you meet our criteria. So I do think one of the real lessons for me is that the role that we can play in an academic informatics department is to help people, you know, kind of grease the skids, make seamless the strategy that they want to use to solve the problem that made them think about informatics as a career in the first place. And one of the things that I hesitate to bring up um, because it always becomes very controversial is some of the, the indolent nature of discussions around folks who are benefiting from the status quo. Because um, there are people who would not like to see change. And I, I mean people of color as well, because as it is, things are pretty fine for them. So- hey, Ari, just, this, Ari, wait, wait, wait. Ari, she is not talking the right stuff here, right? People- uh, uh, you know, I have to say out of the mouths of babes, really, because I mean, I, I do agree. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking too about, uh, you know, George Floyd, and then, you know, we all, experienced and saw what happened, but then in the next breath, but he had hypertension, but he had this, and but he had that. But I, we have to get away from, and, and some, of, some of our own physicians buying into the what ifs instead of taking responsibility for what happens you know, or how you can, can use, I mean, there's a, place and time and whatever and even in our algorithms how what we see through our own eyes this is how we interpret data and this is how we uh make findings so yeah y'all is correct you know they're just people have these blinders on this is the way it is we have these boundaries you go outside of these boundaries you get an x or you know a scarlet letter whatever so you know you, it is truly um it, it's it's you you're it's like Tantalus. You mean Sisyphus. Moving that rock, and you know you just 
can't get any further, you know, yeah. without it rolling back. And so all of this of what we're experiencing now and within healthcare, this was, you know, a few years ago and a few years ago and a few, we're talking 400 years of systematic yeah. racism and what's built into it. And, you know, it's just extremely troubling. So, so let, me, let me ask a question because, you know, so this is a question for Nancy and Patty. One thing that you both perhaps have, although arguably you're both women, and I don't mean that to be negative, but you'll see where I'm going with this, is you're both white. So is your white privilege something that we could be leveraging to somehow allow people who might be uncomfortable with the position in which they find themselves to get through that? So to allow people to know that border, you can help to break down borders. Is that a role that you should be helping us with? Should we be learning that on our own? Is there some way that we work together using each of our strengths? How do we do that? There's no one answer, Kevin. No, no. There's, there's, there is a, there's a lot of, of, of things and, and, it, and no one answer will be universally accepted. So if I stretch a hand out to Philip and say, you can be brave today, I will be at, at, at the risk of pandering or of, of looking ingratiating. I may be disrupting. And so the, the, I go back to the issue of needing agency and bravery. And that the best thing we can do, we can give to our young people and we can give to our colleagues is the capacity to be brave because it, it, the, we, we have relied too much. And I would say this in, in my own career, Nancy and I are, are a little bit close in our career stages. I think of her as quite a bit senior to me, but we're close in age and close in stage. We got by because we didn't disrupt too much. And part of that allowed us to disrupt more once we got in. Yep. But it's a very funny circumstance. I mean, I, I look at our field in biomedical informatics, small diminutive blonde women do not have the power I have. And I look at our current president of AMIA, who's a tremendous, bright, smart researcher. She exercises her power in a different way because of her physical body and the way she interacts with society. And, there, and, and it, it is, it's complicated. I don't know, Nancy, help me out of this one. I wish I could, but I agree. So I'm also at the end stage of my career. I'd say I'm in the short lane of the checkout and Kroger's for the career, but as Kevin knows, well, when is it gonna come? But anyhow, a part of, part of the, you're right. And I came out of the librarian world, a true librarian, Patty, not, not an- Not a me librarian. Yeah, I'm telling the librarian. And that's a low position in organizations. And yet part of what my strategy is, is to plan and think and do. And so one year when I didn't get all the money I needed for the library budget, I made a plan and I went through and I exercised, I implemented that plan. And the next year I got more money than I asked for. But so that's what I keep, when I keep coming back, what, what can informatics do? Because we, we can do something today. We can't change 400 years. And, and we can't, if I go and say something, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it, maybe it comes across disrespectful because that's different and not meant to be. So how, what can we do in informatics? Train more people, get more people to be PhDs. Uh, we've got a high school program. What, what are some things that we can do and I'd be happy to teach people about strategies of take no prisoners in a nice way. <laughs> okay. I want to yeah, ask you and Phil to think about this for a minute. 
the, the, the intake nurse in the ER that received George Floyd had to write something down on an EMR that was going to go into a chart. What do you suppose he or she wrote? And how could informatics provide that person at that moment with the tools to do what, as Nancy's describing, what needs to be done without having to have to create a whole system around it? That's actually, I mean, I don't want to like speak. I, I, like I said, I'm still like kind of dipping my feet into informatics and really trying to understand like what the field is. But one of the things that I read recently was how like, like police killings, for example, kill more people than like, or like kill just as many people as the number of people diagnosed with cystic fibrosis or something, something wow. statistic like that, right? Any and so, exactly. So you have, you have phenotypes for all sorts of different things, fee codes for all sorts of like random things. You see like crazy fee codes sometimes, but <laughs> are, there, like, are there fee codes for these kind of events? Are there what's like- a, What's a fee code? Oh, fee codes, <laughs> before I even start talking. Well, from what I understand, fee codes are a way to like understand ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes or different types of phenotypes. So like, Formal so, labels that we put on, on health problems and health treatments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, stop so, like, off. There, there are fee codes for like I don't even like getting killed by like some random animal. I like saw that once. I was like, oh, that's so strange. There's a fee code for that, but there's not like that's by orca. Exactly. <laughs> and, like, and I feel like if there's ways for you to measure these things and people like, then maybe you can start seeing the patterns, and maybe you can yeah. start measuring like how like you can use informatics in a way to actually benefit society. Because right now, I think that the problem with a lot of things is that we're not, it's not transparent. We don't really know how many black people are getting killed by police. But I feel like we in informatics and we like in the clinical setting can actually measure this. And we can actually like bring about a change in society using the tools and using what we've learned. So, so my earlier point, that's great. And you might have absolutely superb data, but unless you have a way to show it to people then, that they believe, I think the George Floyd made a difference because we all saw it. Yes. If you go back to the Vietnam War, there were some things that happened that we saw which switched things. Yeah, what, what were you thinking, Yah? Oh, just exactly what Nancy said. Um, just data exists. You can watch two different news shows and two different networks communicating the same pieces of data in two exactly different ways. And there are ways to talk about statistics to make the point you would like to make. And I think, again, going back to how us in informatics and sciences are taught about biases and how to explain information to each other, but the translational aspect of it, just like Nancy's saying, how to communicate truths, how to really deliver points to an audience that might not even want to hear you, I think is an important thing that we need to be thinking about. Yeah, yeah I want to go back to this point. Hold on, I want to go back to this point that Patty brought up before, though. So the intake nurse um, has to say something, and you are the you are the czarina of documentation. So you knew this was coming. <laughs> She's in charge of all of our documentation systems at Epic. What what do you think that nurse would have said to you she couldn't do because of biases in Epic or tool biases in the tools that we had available? 
Oh, goodness. It's it's disappointing just the limitations of what we are and aren't able to capture with like what? what we're given to document with. But to Nancy's point, why couldn't she just stand there and talk and just say what she was feeling, say what she saw? Why isn't there just a recording of exactly what's going on? Why does she have to explain what she's seeing in words on a paper and summarize things when we could literally just capture what the experience was. We have all these ways to get information in a way that we can distill it more, but we start with pre-distilled information. And I think that's a disservice. Well, but to Philip's point, and this is a major informatics challenge, if we want to be able to monitor and measure and improve, then I need her to talk in a way that becomes computable, right? Uh -huh. And I, I think, so how do we get there? I mean, Patty's point is, this nurse may have had observations about the body, George Floyd, about the environment in which he came. You know, that video still doesn't show everything. It shows what videos show. It doesn't show bystanders. It doesn't show the police. We don't get to hear the conversation the police might have been having with each other that might have informed some of their inaction, right? So one could say that the nurse does have, or the intake person is privy to that, is there a way that that should be comp be computable? Should we be is all of that medical information that we somehow need to capture somehow? Oh, one hundred percent. The words that she's saying could be captured by natural language processing. The movements she's making, the observations that she sees. We have computer vision technology that can capture those things. With regards to things that happened, the environment that led up to it. Just putting together um, time lapse videos of what other people saw and different technology. So we have different angles from different security cameras across the street and the people that were filming. The entire picture can be rebuilt and recreated and restructured and even modeled for better or for worse um, to um, explain the events of what's going on, to give the nurse herself even more information um, to help build a picture in her mind about what she needs to do next. Patty, I know that you have to run. Any final words you want to leave us with? So I'm going to ask those of you who've thought about the health of children to think about how what we've learned about recording family violence and intimate child abuse can be translated to helping us provide the right kinds of clinical documentation to those who have suffered at the hands of legitimate authority abuses that they should not have suffered. Yeah. And send me the answers. Yeah. Or maybe better yet, send me a research grant for it. <laughs> hey, everybody who's listening to this, who was involved with informatics, you just heard Patty tell you, that's the research she wants to see. Um, <laughs> Patty, I, I'm going to say goodbye to you and everybody say, I'm also going to see if anybody else has any final things they want to say to Ari and to uh, Philip that relate to what we should be doing to help deal with the issues of bias. And Ari brings up the issue of issues with access and issues with making systems that actually work for people's needs. So what else, is there anything else we need to be thinking about? Well, I would like to say that uh, we are human beings and uh, we do have our biases and we look out of several lenses every time we uh, uh, make a decision about anything, whether it's our own backgrounds lens, whether it's our individual lens or our institutional lens or our group. We, we're looking through all of these and we see the world as we see the world, sometimes rather than the world as it is. 
So I think if we keep thinking about those things, that will certainly contribute significantly to the interpretation and to capture the what is so that we can move forward. Thank you, Reverend Nettles. (laughs) (laughs) No, go ahead. We've got to do something that would, that is clear, that is visual, as opposed to just talking about it. We've got to take it and move it. It's back to the quote I found that I liked. Knowledge is only power if it is applied in a powerful way. So my question is, for all of Mm. these things, what is or what could be powerful ways to apply them? When I first mentioned the iPhone, it was, this is a powerful tool. I mean, this was a game changer for everybody. What's one powerful way that each of us could do today or tomorrow to start making the change? And we didn't get into this overnight. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get out of it overnight. But we can do something. This is just a general question about informatics and academia, is that when you guys, when we run like analyses and we run experiments and we write papers right what's like the next step right like where like where do we go from there and why is it that a lot of the changes that we're trying to like we like we notice things we make observations and we want to make changes either in society or the healthcare system as a whole why is it that it either takes so long or there are people or roadblocks that stop it from happening so unfortunately the the motivations in Academics sometimes are to create knowledge um, and disseminate knowledge as well. But sometimes it feels like it's just short of your peers. Like you, you want to get this information out there and you want to make a change. But um, sometimes you're very much in this mindset that I'm a scientist and this is what I do. Like I have done my part as a scientist and maybe there's another team that's supposed to pick up this mantle, take this knowledge I've created and run with it. Um, and the translation of it, I think that's what we need to give a lot of focus because there are people working really hard to come up with these models and, their, and these solutions, um, but until it's in the hands of people, until they can take from uh, Nancy's teachings and Aries learnings to say, well, this is how we can get people to actually use it. It doesn't matter. You're just throwing something over the wall. So exactly to your point that unfortunately, sometimes your grant is to do a trial and to prove that you got a significant p-value and you've done it and you feel proud of yourself. Um, And then the next step is get another grant. Well, and let me say something about that. Because Ari has had the most experience. I think Ari and Nancy may hold one of the keys, Philip, to the point you bring up. And, you know, I mentioned this at the very beginning, but if you had watched Ari take an idea as simple as unconscious bias, and it, it took her a sentence or two to explain it, and maybe one scientific experiment to show you how you have it. There's a couple of them that are online that are great. And then, Ari, how long did it take you to get that through Vanderbilt so that people understood it? I would say 11 years and counting, uh, but it really took a year <laughs> and a half. For people, people who didn't see that, Philip's eyes completely out of his head. I heard in Philip's face, I heard, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 11 years. 11 years? Nancy, does that surprise you? No, not at all. Why not? I, I think way back, I think way back, it, this is 
this is how everything is, even in medicine. They knew some things you could do for heart and stroke in the ED, and yet it took about 20 years, and that may, that may not be exactly the number of years before it became standard practice in every ED in the country. So um, when, one of the NIH leaders way back when had this, if you start with a T1, time one, and time two, you, you lose so much and it takes so long. So no, it, it is a slow process, but it's that snowball going down the hill. Um, the kinds of things I talk about are let's figure out what snowball is going to make it down the hill because it gets, it starts small, but when it goes, now Eric, I went to one of your class, one of the classes on unconscious bias. It was outstanding. That's just within the last year or two here. So the issue is that snowball took a while to figure out where to go. And now that it's rolling, it is really rolling. But uh, if you were to ask Ari, and I'm going to ask you, Ari, mm -hmm. how many years do you think it took before the snowball went downhill? Oh, gosh. Before I could even get it in front of anybody, it was about a year and a half. What, the, what, what kept that from happening? Well, because I had to, well, I, I had training. I went to an executive leadership program with Sparadis Solution Center that is out of um, Harvard Mass General. Uh, then I took, uh, then there were at least 16 formal presentations to senior administration uh, in order to establish buy-in because I had identified the sense of urgency about it. And then to get the buy-in and to get the feedback and to get the vetting and to write it up as, as, as a model and then present it for um, you know, before the executives, you know, the executive medical committee, and as a pilot, initially as a pilot, um, it, it just takes a, a, a long process. So now I'm Philip sitting here thinking, no wonder anybody, nobody goes into academia. You have a great <laughs> that's idea. What I was, that's what I was just about to say is that, you know, academic medicine, like, I think like that's one of the, like, the pervasive problems with academic medicine is that there's just so much red tape. You know, like if you want to make a change or if you want to do something, like there were layers and layers and layers yeah. of people that you have to like. I'm going to challenge it slightly here because this is where a little bit of my experience comes in. The red tape that you're hearing Ari talk about and the socio-technical aspects of IT and, and help and delivery that, that Nancy's talking about are in every industry in the entire world. Every. I didn't used to believe it. <laughs> but I, I will tell you as a great example, I have a friend who produced the movies How to Train Your Dragon, okay? Yeah. His name is Dean DeBlois. I hope you're listening to this, Dean. And <laughs> one of the things that Dean said on a recent podcast was five years to even get to the idea of getting funding for the program, for the development of How to Train Your Dragon. Multiple years to get the additional money to get it into theaters years of marketing before that sucker gets in the theater because you have to you have to develop an audience right right and if it's a that's why people like trilogies the reason why movies are done in, in trilogies is because every time they do that movie the marginal cost for producing marketing distributing goes down because there's already a group of people who know the movie okay and that's why it happens because it's exactly this tale 
that leads up to this, you know, letting something go and applying it to an audience that's receptive. So as much as I'd like to believe that academia has that red tape, I have learned it's not just academia, it's the release of the iPhone, et cetera. But I guess the frustrating thing with academia is that even if everything has this kind of red tape in academia, specifically in clinical medicine, it's like people's lives are literally like the longer you wait, like the more people are like, like straight up getting hurt from this, you know? Oh, so, so, so we should basically follow the hydroxychloroquine model and just get it out <laughs> here because it seems to be good enough? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I understand like the counterpoints too. So like, it's just, it's, just, it's frustrating. I like, yeah, it's just, it's just, fresh. that's just frustrating. I mean, Ari can, so, Ari, Ari, I'm going to put a little bit of words in your mouth since I was there and I know okay. we're a little short on time. It seems at the time, like once you have been a convert, the rest of it seems perfunctory. Why is it that you need to go to 20 meetings of the chairs? Why can't I just get all the chairs in one room, tell them that we're gonna do this, right? And part of the answer to Nancy's point is, if you are the, if you are the boss and you are willing to have people leave because you believe in something so strongly, then you can tell them. You can bring them all in the room and say, we're doing unconscious bias training. If you don't like it, yep. go home. But so, most people aren't that person. What most no. people are is trying to change the hearts and minds of people so that they can be receptive to something. And I can guarantee you that if I tried to convince you tomorrow to stop swimming and instead to start becoming a chess speed a master, <laughs> even though it might seem obvious to me, which it doesn't, I have a feeling I'd have to spend some time with you to convince you about that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's fundamentally what Ari and Nancy are telling us that that in addition to these issues of, of agency that we have to really think about, another really big issue is, I think we have to recognize that everything in medicine that, and everything in health, everything in health, and this is what they talk about with behavioral economics, is a marathon, not a sprint. And mm -hmm. so we have to do it a little at a time. You have to get to the point where one part of that becomes routine, and then you have to add to it. And, and as a leader at Vanderbilt, um, and I think Ari and Nancy would agree, you have to basically accept that a part of getting an idea that's really important out into the world is slow dripping of the idea into people's brains so that they can believe that it's important. Comments? But I have a comment about this point in time. When Ari was doing this, people didn't want to take a risk. They were afraid. So it took a long time. So now we've scared the bejesus or whatever else out of the leaders. And you have an opportunity to push some ideas right now because they're looking for the goal line. They're looking for that touchdown and they don't know what it is. And by darn, if you know some things that we could do, you know, the, I guess the metaphor is run for daylight. They're all running for daylight, but they don't know where it is. This is a perfect time to put new ideas out there that will help. So I, I'm going to have to echo this. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, there, we have the concept of uh, opportunisticism yeah. in, in medicine, right? This is, um, this is the opportunity to really get through some change and elevate some voices that might have seemed inconvenient at that time. But the attention is there now. Um, and 
we can actually potentially get more momentum than we would have at other times. So just um, so provide really daylight. What daylight do we want them to run for? That's, that's the key. And the last thing I want to add is that I, I just wanted to um, give accolades to um, Kevin for enabling just a mentorship program. Um, that allows um, people like myself and Philip, but also that allows people like Kim Unertle to have high school students learn about informatics um, that might have had no idea what it even is and um, might come from backgrounds where they wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to that. Um, I, I think one of the stories um, Kim likes to tell is we had a student who had never been on a plane before, but she had the opportunity to attend yeah. AMIA. And I think this kind of role modeling and really being intentional about saying, I am in a position of privilege and I know other people aren't and it's my job, it's my responsibility to make sure that I pull people up with me. Um, is just okay, okay, really okay, that's enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, <laughs> you know, of course, who knows the word ditto, but the same applies for me because we, we this journey, uh, which is a very long, Kevin was just extraordinarily instrumental in helping me to kind of, uh, along this journey and through this journey and to be a support through the journey. So, well, and, and, and for Philip, sustainability is the key <laughs> because we want, <laughs> we want things to, to, to really remain, make it part of the fabric and you continuously improve and take care of that fabric and grow and you know, it, it's just that's 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 the whole key. It's sustainable, yeah. healthy sustainability. Yeah. Well, guys, as we as we close out here, I have one major favor to ask you. And Ari, I I could have put you on the spot because of the violins, but <laughs> remembering the name of this is informatics in the round. Oh. And and remembering that this is a topic that is both somber but also a conversation that I think we've had that gives people hope, right? I think we've given people a, a toolkit that we should now work on. And since we're doing, we're filming this or recording this on shutdown STEM day, there must be some piece of music that I could be playing at the end that you guys would say represents the conversation we've had today. So none of you knew that question was coming, but can you give me an idea of what piece of music I should stick on the end of this that would be a, a good informatic? Uh, a, change, uh, a change is gonna come. That's a good one. Sam I like Cook. it, yeah. Oh, Sam Cook. Mm. I'm like seeing it. all nods except for Nancy. She's just staring well, at me. Well, I know I'm I'm a Simon and Garfunkel fan, so I'm gonna <laughs> bridge over troubled water.
But I know 